So I heard that 80% of accidents happen within 10 miles of the home. So I moved 11 miles away from my house. So that accidents, only the 20% of other accidents would happen to me. That's why I moved 11 miles from my house. Thank you. Okay, so this week's Torah portion, Hashem tells Avram, he was called Avram back then, Lech Lecha, go for yourself which means leave, get out of this place, leave your home. It wasn't his homeland, he had already left his homeland, or Kazdim, but leave the place where you have settled, that you made home, it's called Choron, and uh, go further. And, he, and, and, and Hashem didn't even tell him where he's going to go, he just said, go and I'll, I'll let you know when you get there. So, uh, I just want to take a look at the first couple of verses where this instruction to leave home is described. Hashem said to Avram, he wasn't yet Avraham with the extra letter hey, he was Avram. Lech lecha, go for yourself. From your land, from your birthplace, from your father's house, to the land that I will show you. That's the first verse. Second verse. I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great, meaning your, your reputation. I'll make you famous. And you will be a blessing. Okay, those are the first two verses. Now when we want to understand simple meaning in a Bible verse, we look in the commentary of Rashi. Rashi is the preeminent commentary. There are literally thousands of rabbinic commentaries on what they call the Tanakh, on the scripture, but Rashi is the go-to as far as straightforward, simple meaning. Okay, so Rashi tells us, Lech Lecha, go for yourself, it's a little bit of an unusual turn of phrase, go for yourself. Um, some say, go to yourself, that, but that has a deeper explanation, like an act of self-discovery. But Rashi is just explaining the simple meaning. Obviously, every Torah verse has layers of meaning, but we just want the straightforward meaning here. Okay, so go for yourself. Rashi explains, For your benefit and for your welfare, for your good, for your own good. Meaning to say, lech lecha, go for yourself, it will be good for you. It will pay off for you. I'm telling you something that's going to turn out good for you. That's what the lecha part means. Go, why? For you. It's gonna, I'm not telling you, don't do this for me. Do yourself a favor, lech, lecha, do it for you. Okay. Vasham and there, where, wherever it is that you'll go. Eschalagaygadol, I'll make you into a great nation. 
you know those words. Those are the words from the next verse. In other words, Rashi is connecting verse 1 to verse 2. He's explaining the flow. Go for yourself. What does it mean for yourself? Well, the next verse tells you what it means for yourself. That there, once you get to this destination point, you're going to become a great nation. Vekan, furthermore, Vekan i here, where you are now, you're not going to merit to have children. Ve'oid, and fur, there you will. And another thing, I want to make you famous. I want, I want everyone to know about you. Okay. And which is basically what's described in the next verse, which we read. But I want to read the Rashi in the next verse as well. Get ready. So the Raja in the next verse explaining those words, I'm going to make you into a great nation. If you go, I'm going to make you into a great nation. So Rashi explains what is the meaning of, the, of these words. See, before Rashi explained the meaning of verse 1 by using words from, from verse 2. Now I want to understand verse 2. See, we're moving in, a, in an order here. Okay. So what does it mean? I'm going to make you into a great nation. Go, and I'll make you into a great nation. Lefi, Rashi says, Lefi shahaderech goyremes l'shleshet dvarim. The traveling. Derech means the, the, the way, but it literally, it literally means the, the way, but figuratively it means traveling. Traveling causes three things. Traveling causes three things. Mema'etes priya rovia. It diminishes... Being fruitful and multiplying. That's that mitzvah that we actually mentioned in the first Torah portion as well as the second portion. So it diminishes being fruitful and multiplying. It's hard to be fruitful and multiply while you're traveling. And it diminishes wealth. It's hard to amass wealth while you're moving around. You got to sort of stay in one place and build your assets. And traveling diminishes renown. It makes it hard to establish a reputation when you're always just rolling into town. You're the new guy as opposed to someone who sets up shop and he builds his reputation, becomes well known. You guys played the board game Risk, right? You start with one country and then you build. Okay. So traveling generally diminishes these three things. This is just a known thing. Traveling makes it hard to have a family. Tra traveling makes it hard to amass wealth. Traveling makes it hard to amass or to uh, gain a reputation. Lekach, therefore, huskak l'shleisha broches halolo, Avram needed these three particular blessings to offset what traveling normally causes. God promised him you're going to have children. And you're going to have wealth. And you're going to have fame. Okay. So normally traveling diminishes these three things. Building a family, building wealth, and building a reputation. Therefore, Hashem had to specifically guarantee, don't worry, in your case, I'll take care of you. I'll make sure you're going to have an extra divine boost in those areas. You won't suffer. You'll only gain. Okay. Simple question. Simple question. The first verse said, Lech lecha, go for yourself, for your own benefit. This is, this is good for you. Do yourself a favor. It's going to be good for you in a number of ways. In fact, three particular ways. Family, wealth, 
and reputation. In the next verse he says, I'm going to guarantee you success, divinely blessed success in these three areas, because normally traveling makes those three things particularly uh, hard to uh, succeed in. So there's a little bit of a contradiction here. Is Hashem telling Avram that if he's going to travel, he's going to succeed in those three areas because of the traveling or in spite of the traveling? The first verse, the way Rashi explains it, you're going to succeed in those three areas because of the traveling. If you travel, it'll be good in these three ways. But the second verse, the way Rashi explains it, it sounds pretty clear. No, naturally speaking, these three things are going to really suffer. They're going to take a beating when you travel, but I'll offset it and I'll make it go the way it's not normally supposed to go because I can do that, that you know, God's saying. So that's our question. Is Avram succeeding because he's following God's instructions to travel? Or is he succeeding in spite of following God's instructions to travel? Now you're going to say, that doesn't really sound like such a bombshell question. It's not going to keep me up at night. Like, if you don't answer this question, I'm not going to lose sleep, right? And I get, that's okay. That's all right. I'm not... I'm not discouraged by that. It's called reading the room. I'm looking around and people are like, this is the setup because I'm not really that engaged. But that's okay. And there are cookies in the back. So you could always justify you came out, you got a cookie. And at worst, you heard a mediocre Torah class and you had a good cookie. So what would, what would you rather have? A good Torah class and a mediocre cookie? Or a mediocre class and a good cookie. So, take your pick. Okay. At any rate, I want to tell you a story. The story is about a guy who I actually just saw him recently, not too far from here. We're on Central Avenue in Cedarhurst, New York. And uh, I saw him at the Oihel, at the resting place of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, which is in Queens, about four and a half miles from here. And uh, his name is Ami Pekovsky. And he's an Israeli guy who, uh, he has a very interesting story. He has many interesting stories. But uh, I'll tell you one story that uh, I just think is very powerful. And that is, he, like I said, he's Israeli. And he, like most Israelis, raised very secular, Israeli, not Jewish, right? But he actually had some semblance of awareness of Jewish ritual or religious law, because that's actually how he began to know about the Rebbe. He was on a business trip to China. I think it was China. It was definitely the Far East back in the 70s or the 80s. And um, he always had a thing that he didn't eat pork. He was not at all religious, like completely secular, but that was his one thing. For whatever reason, he didn't eat pork. And then when he was at a business meeting in China, he accidentally ate pork, and then he found out, and he was very upset. 
And I don't know who, but somebody told him to write to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and he did so, and he asked for uh, a tikkun, a way of correcting it. So that's actually how he began his religious journey. So, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> who am I to even wonder? But sometimes you wonder, like, why does something... The poor guy, the one mitzvah that he kept was not eating pork. But you see that it's not a good thing that he accidentally ate pork, but his reaction to it is actually what started his whole uh, development and his spiritual growth. At any rate, so he starts becoming a little bit more uh, religious and eventually gets to a point where he feels like it would be appropriate for him to be Shomer Shabbos, to keep Shabbos. Now the problem was that he was in retail and specifically he was the owner of a sporting goods, not really sporting goods, more like sports clothing store in downtown LA. So this was, this was all retail. This was all people just walking in off the street and buying a tracksuit or whatever and 95% um, of his business, literally 95 if not more, uh, percent of his business was all on Saturday. That's when people came and they walked into the store and they tried on clothes and they bought clothes. So he came to a point where he decides, you know what, I have to keep Shabbos. And even though it's going to wipe out 95% of my business and I really don't have a way to recoup that, but I'm just going to have to do, I'll have to do what I'll do and uh, I'll let the chips fall where they may. He had one problem that complicated it, and that was that he didn't own the building. It was an entire, the building where he had the, the sports clothing store in downtown LA was an entire city block. It was massive. It was an entire city block. And he didn't own it. He rented it. And he had rented it for a 20-year lease. And when he signed the 20-year lease, the owner actually told him, do you know what you're doing right now? You're signing a 20-year lease. I'm not joking around. If you ever think that you're going to break this lease, you will never, ever break this lease. If you try to get out of paying, I will chase you for the rest of your life. You will not get away from this. Do not sign this unless you're ready to keep a 20-year lease. And he says, I know what I'm doing. I want it. And he signed it, and he committed to a 20-year lease. So... The problem was, he was ready for his store to basically go bankrupt, but how's he going to pay the, the rent? So he started looking around for somebody who might want to take over the lease. And he told people, other people in retail, I don't want anything for this. I'm not asking to, you know, to, to take a cut for brokering the deal. I simply want somebody to take over this lease. And everyone laughed at him, and they said, nobody wants a 20-year lease. So he didn't know what to do, and he wrote to the Rebbe. So this was his second time writing to the Rebbe. His first time was after the pork incident. This is the second time. Okay, so he writes to the Rebbe, and he said, my plan is to close on Shabbos. Um, most of my business is Shabbos, but I'm ready to take the hit. I'm writing to the Rebbe, I'm asking for a blessing that I shouldn't get hurt. That's how he wrote it, that I shouldn't get hurt. 
So he said he got a response from the Rebbe, very unusual. He received $18 from the Rebbe, a $10 bill, a $5 bill, a $2 bill, and a, and a single dollar bill. 10, 5, 2, 1, 18. And the Rebbe wrote a response with three points. Echad, point number one, was, and this, he said, blew him away because what he didn't tell the Rebbe, he told the Rebbe in general terms, I'm going to close on Shabbat. What he didn't say was that he had in mind what that meant was Saturday day. It did not mean Friday night. And in his mind, that in the winter, on Friday, when store hours would go past the beginning of Shabbos, he would just continue working, and then whenever he closed the shop Friday night, that's when he would start Shabbos. He was ready to commit to Saturday, not to the Friday night part of it. Uh, you know, in the summer, it's not a problem. Shabbos comes in very late, 8, 9 o'clock, so you can close the store, and it's still not candle lighting yet. But in the winter, when Shabbos starts coming in earlier, he, he, he accepted already that wasn't part of the deal. He wasn't ready for that. Like I said, he wasn't religious. He just was taking on one mitzvah at a time, and this is where he was at. He was at this point where he felt it was the right thing. He's a Jewish person. He owns a store. He should, his store should be, uh, should be Shomer Shabbos, to, to whatever degree he was, that meant to him. So, and he didn't tell the Rebbe that was his plan. He just told the Rebbe, I'm starting to close on Shabbos. It's 95% of my business, and I'm asking a bracha for a blessing. I shouldn't get hurt. So I told you there were three points. First point was, point number one, matchil kodem shkiat hachama. Lagadol haschut. You should begin, meaning begin your Shabbos observance, before shkiat hachama, before the setting of the sun, and you will have great merit. So he saw right there what he felt was a miracle, that the Rebbe knew somehow that he didn't intend to close before sunset on Friday. And the Rebbe was basically saying, I'm saying to him, yes, you're going to keep not just Saturday day, but you're going to keep Friday night as well, no matter what time it comes in. The second thing he told him, that you should uh, disperse or disseminate Torah teachings joyfully. And latet, the third one was latet tzedakah shama. You should give tzedakah, you should give charity over there. So, and then he had, and again, he had the $18, the 10, the 5, the 2, and the 1. So he was uplifted by this. And he felt very encouraged. So he says, okay, you know what? I got the Rebbe's blessings. And uh, that's it. I'm going to go down to the, to the landlord. And I'm going to tell him, I'm a Jew, I'm keeping Shabbos, and I'm breaking the lease, and that's it, and I'm sorry, this, this is what i got to do. i got to do what i got to do. So he marches down to the landlord. The landlord had, a, had an office, and uh, there was a secretary there, a receptionist. And he said, I'm here to see Mr. So-and-so, the owner. And she said, he's not here today. <laughs> so a little anticlimactic because he got himself all hyped up because he got the Rebbe's answer. He marches down. Oh, he's, he's, he's not here. Okay, fine. So he goes back to his store and he's working in the store for a little while 
And a little while later, some guy walks in and says, um, I need to know how to, uh, I, 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 need, I need to know who has, who has the lease to this, to this uh, building? So he says, you want to know who owns it? I don't own it. I'm not the owner. He says, I know you're not the owner. I was just at the owner. So he's like very confused. Okay, yeah. So I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm the one renting. He says, I know you're, you're the, 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 you have a lease. You're the one renting. Yeah, I'm the owner. Okay, so listen. I just tried to buy this building from the owner, and he tells me, you're holding on to the lease. And you got a 20-year lease. And he says, he can't sell it to me because of you. So tell me what you want to break this lease. So Ami was totally blown away. Here he was, he was trying to find somebody who would take over the lease. Then he was ready to go march down and tell the guy, you know, Whatever happens, happens. Now all of a sudden, this guy's chasing me, he's begging for me. Tell me what you want, tell me what you want. What are your terms that you should, you sh you should break the lease so that I can buy the, the building from the owner? So he's like, I don't, I, don't, I don't know, like it never occurred to him. So the guy takes out a checkbook and he writes a check. I mean, he never said the number, the amount, okay. What he said was, the guy wrote a check he shows it to me, and he's like, will this be enough for you to get up and get out of here and allow me to buy this building? And he said, sure. <laughs> he tell, he, I don't know the number, but he said that the, the amount of the check, just the amount of that check, was enough to buy a home and to start uh, a factory. And he got into manufacturing, got out of retail, he went into manufacturing and uh, did much better in manufacturing than he ever did in retail. And, and bought a house for himself. So that, that's, like I said, I, f I find that to be a very powerful story. The question is this. Ami was ready to take a big hit, whatever that would mean. Maybe even, you know, bankruptcy, maybe he's going to get sued. He's going to lose everything. He's ready for it. He's ready for it. Why? Shabbos. He's ready to do the right thing, whatever happens. And in the end, not only nothing bad happens to him, but something totally unpredictably good happens to him, beyond what he had dreamt. So, the question is, breaking the lease was not a good move. There would not, there would not be something normally that would be good for him. But keeping Shabbos forced him to do it, so he did it. And then he became uh, rewarded for that, well rewarded. Did he succeed in this disproportionate way because he did something that normally 
would have caused him financial ruin? Or did he have this disproportionate success in spite of the fact that he was ready to do something that would normally cause him financial ruin? And this is our question about Avram. Avram's told, get up, go, lech lecha, travel. Well, traveling, we know, causes, generally speaking, three things. It's going to diminish the ability to build a family. It's going to diminish your ability to build uh, assets. And it's going to diminish your ability to build a, a reputation. That's, naturally speaking, what it causes. And yet, Avram traveling not only didn't cause those three areas of life to suffer, but it caused him disproportionate success. He built the family. We're here, right? We're his family. And he built an empire. He was very wealthy. Not right away, but eventually. Uh, and he built a reputation. <clears throat> We're talking about him right now. You ever heard of the Abrahamic faiths? <laughs> you know, he, he built the reputation. He's pretty famous. All because he, went, he got up and he traveled when normally that would have been a really bad move. But God told him to do it, so he did it. So, here's the deal. When we do the right thing, when we do Hashem's will and we surrender our own will, the idea isn't that, well, now Hashem owes me, and now it's going to be good. In fact, that's my guarantee. By doing the right thing, I'm now guaranteed success. No, actually, by doing the right thing, you're guaranteed failure. And you have to be ready to sign up for the failure. And you have to be ready to accept the fact this is going to ruin you. Like Ami walking down to the landlord's office, ready to be wiped out. And when you're ready to get wiped out, that surrender, that placing aside of the ego, the E-G-O, the edging God out, <laughs> makes room for something infinitely greater than what we could have done through our own human power. So, it's not the question of, did Avram succeed because of traveling or in spite of traveling? He succeeded because he was ready to embrace failure if that's what doing the right thing required. It's interesting, at the end of last week's portion, we were already introduced to Avram. Just a little bit. We got a little genealogy about Avram. And at the beginning of this week's Torah portion, Lech Lecha, he's already 75. He's already 75 years old. But in the very end of last week's Torah portion, Noyach, we're introduced to Avram. At least we're told about, about his family, about his father, Terach, and we're told about his brother, Horon. Horon was actually the father of, of Sarai, later Sarah. Um, and Horon died back in Urkastim. Urkastim was in Mesopotamia. That's where he grew up. That's where... Um, Avram grew up in Mesopotamia. Do you know what the world's first pun was? We sure made a Mesopotamia. 
that's translated from the cuneiform tablets. Mesopotamia. At any rate, so back in Ur-Kazdim, uh, Horon, the brother of Avram, died. It says he died. But uh, in the scripture, it doesn't say how he died. In the oral tradition, we, we learn how he died. And the oral tradition deduces it from the fact that it says that he died before or in front of his father and explains what that means is that after the whole famous smashing the idol shop story, which we all know, which I'm not going to tell. Um, so Terach actually complained to the king. You know who the king was at that time? It was Nimrod or Nimrod. The, do you know the, the expression of calling somebody a Nimrod? The theory is that it comes from uh, Bugs Bunny and that he called Elmer Fudd a Nimrod and it was actually a very accurate biblical reference because Nimrod is described when he's introduced in uh, Parshas Noyach as a mighty hunter. And the Bugs Bunny was sarcastically calling Elmer Fudd a Nimrod because he was not a mighty hunter. He was an incompetent hunter. Mm -hmm. There's a theory about that. Yeah, because they don't find that Nimrod was used as an insult before that time. It's not that old, even though it's a biblical phrase or name. So just an interesting uh, theory. Um, at any rate, so the king was Nimrod or Nimrod and Terach, the father of Avram, went and he complained to Nimrod and he said, my son just busted up the idol shop. And listen, kids, I want to tell you something. Don't talk to police, okay? They're not your friends. Do not talk to police. You just say, I want my attorney present and that's it. So he thought he was just schmoozing. By the way, I'm not joking about that. Um, yeah, that's very serious. But yeah. Uh, you think you're just schmoozing, you think you're just showing that you're friendly. Oh, where you been tonight? Where you going? Oh. So he thought he was just schmoozing. Terach thought he was just schmoozing with, uh, with uh, Nimrod. And he's like, oh, my son busted up the idols. And Nimrod's like, oh, really? Bring him here. And he arrested him. He arrested Avram. And he uh, said, we're going to throw him in the, in the fiery furnace. Capital punishment. And um, what happened is a miracle that Avram survived. They threw him in the fiery furnace and he survived. At any rate, they asked Horon, the brother of Avram, well, what's up with you? you, are, you are you like your brother or are you like your father? Are you like a normal guy, like an idol worshiper, like your father? Are you one of these crazy monotheists? like your brother. So Horon said to himself, well, let me see. I'm going to see what happens. If Avram gets miraculously rescued, that means this monotheistic deity is pretty good. So then when they ask me, I'll be like, yeah, I'm a monotheist too, like, like my brother. But if he dies, then I'll just tell them what they want to hear and I'll be like, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm one of you. So that's exactly what transpired. Avram was miraculously rescued. They asked Horon, and what's with you? He said, I'm like him. 
And they said, great, then you'll go in the furnace like him. They threw him in the furnace, and he burnt, and he died. And he left um, two little um, orphan daughters. One of them was Sara, or Yiska, and she married Avram. Because after his brother died like that, then he did what in the ancient world was considered the right thing, is he married his, uh, his niece in order to take care of her because she, she was orphaned and he felt, Avram felt somewhat responsible for that. At any rate, you see here, there's a person who's ready to lose it all. Avram, he's ready to lose it all. And instead, he's miraculously protected. Haran was not ready to lose anything. He was hedging his bets. He said, let me see. If there's nothing to be lost by proclaiming my faith, then I'll proclaim my faith. Didn't work out for him. So if I were to say to you, does traveling, does Avram traveling cause him to succeed because he traveled or in spite of traveling? Or if I would ask you, did Ami get this big fat check out of nowhere because he went, uh, because he wanted to break the lease, or in spite of wanting to break the lease? The same question is, did Avram experience a miraculous rescue because getting thrown in a furnace is normally fatal, or in spite of the fact that getting thrown in a furnace is normally <laughs> fatal? The answer is that if you're ready to embrace the fact that you're going to suffer because of this, you're going to lose because of this, then you're making room for something to happen that's much bigger than you. If you're doing this because it makes sense in any type of a rational way, any type of a natural explanation, that it could be a good strategy, okay, then maybe it is a good strategy, maybe it is, but it's only going to be as successful as human power is capable of making it. You're not going to get any miracles. No, miracles. A human being could succeed, okay, but you're not going to pull off any miracles. So if something naturally speaking is going to have a certain effect, you're not going to get out of it. There's no way of getting out of it with just pure human power. You're going to do something that's a crazy business move that's going to bankrupt you, and you're running on human power, it's going to bankrupt you. That's what's going to happen. But if you're going on godly power, well, God is unlimited, and anything could happen. And the dumbest possible move could actually become the most lucrative, the most successful move. So it's not about does the act itself cause help or harm. That's not the point. The point is that the state of surrender, of being ready to embrace losing it all, if that's what's required, not that anyone wants to lose it all, but being ready to lose it all, that surrender, that moving the ego out of the way, that's what makes space for something disproportionately, infinitely greater to, to rush in and to fill that and to cause miracles to happen. Now, I just want to just briefly talk about a related concept. And that is that, well, I'm going to read to you here from 
This is Maimonides. This is the Rambam, Mishnah Torah. This happens to be the book of Mada, the first of the 14 books. And I'm, and I'm looking in chapter... I'm looking in the Laws of Repentance. It's called Hilchas Chova, uh, Perek Yod. That's chapter 10, Halacha Base, the second paragraph. He says like this. Ho'evid me'ava. Someone who serves Hashem out of love. Oisik batayda uva mitzvais. He occupies himself in tayda mitzvahs. Vahelich be nesivais hachachma. And he follows in the paths of wisdom. Loimipne davar ba'elam. Not because of anything in this world. Meaning, not for any payoff or reward. Not because he's afraid of negative stuff happening to him. And not in order to accrue any benefit, anything good. But rather, he does the truth because it is true. He does the right thing for its own sake, because it's the right thing. Not because of any negative thing will happen to him if he doesn't do it. Not because of any positive benefit that he will incur if he does do it. And in the end, good things will happen because of it. But it's incidental. It's incidental. Okay, yeah, it'll work. It'll probably work out. But that's not the point. That's not my motivation. I'm doing the right thing because it's the right thing. Okay. Umaylazu. This is, I'm reading from Maimonides here, from the Rambam. Umay and this quality that we just described, serving Hashem without any concern for how it will personally affect you. He, may it is an incredibly high, lofty level, ve'ein kol not everybody is able to reach that level, ve'hi maylas, Avraham Avinu. It is in fact the level of Avraham Avinu, our father Abraham. Whom Hashem referred to as the one who loves me. Meaning he does things purely out of love for me, not because of what it'll do for him. Simple question. We just described Avraham as being so selfless that he served Hashem without any concern for how it would affect him. So then, why did he have to be told, oh, by the way, you're going to travel, it normally causes these three problems, I'm going to offset that, I'm going to make it work out well for you. Avram shouldn't care. That shouldn't even be on his mind. And furthermore, if I just gonna, if I can just add to the question, um, if you go later on in the parsha, to uh, you know the war with the kings, when so uh, light becomes uh, light is the is the brother of uh, of Sarai, so. I, but what what should you call it? Yeah, yeah. Light, yeah. Light was the brother of 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 Yisko Sarai, and um, so he gets kidnapped. He's a, actually a prisoner of war, and Avram goes and fights like a world war 
against the whole alliance of kings in order to save his nephew. And after the war, they're sort of like dividing the spoils of the war. Where is this? Uh, they're dividing the spoils of the war. And they want to pay him off. They want to divvy it up. And they want to pay him off. Avram. Yeah. So he, he says, no, I don't want anything. I don't want anything from you at all. And then Hashem comes to him. Well, I'll, I'll read what it says. ho'ele. After these matters transpired, Hashem came to Avram in a vision, like a prophetic vision, and said to him, Al tiro Avram, don't be afraid, Avram. Anechi mogin loch, I will protect you. Schorcho harbe ma'id, your reward is very great. The Rambam just held up Avraham as the model of total selfless altruism. He doesn't care how he's affected. And now we find, I'm reading my Bible over here, and we're told that before he left on his Lech Lecha journey, he's told, don't worry, I'm going to offset the three things that are normally diminished. After the war with the kings, he's told, oh, don't worry, by the way, in case you thought that you cashed in your reward by being protected and by being victor miraculously victorious in this war, don't worry, you still, you're still going to get a lot of reward. What does Avram care about reward? We know he doesn't care about reward. So I'll tell you another question that will help me to come back and answer this question. And that is a question that the Chassam Seifer asks, which is, we're told that when Avram went down to Egypt, remember when he first arrives in the land, there's a famine. And he goes down to Egypt because there's food there. And the whole thing happens, Sarai gets kidnapped by, by Parai, by the Pharaoh, but then uh, he gets her out of there, and then they pay him off, and they, they, they leave rich. Okay. So we're told that on his way back up out of Egypt, he stayed at the same hotels, the same lodging that he stayed at on his way down there. And we're told, Rashi says, he did, he did it to pay off the debt. The debt. Because he left because there was a famine, so he's impoverished, he didn't have any money. So when he stayed there, he stayed on credit. When he came back from Egypt, he was wealthy at that point, so he made sure to go back to the same hotels and pay up the bill from the previous time he stayed there. Okay, so the Chassam Seva asks a question and says, you really think anybody was letting him stay there on credit? You really think they were letting him stay for free? Especially a stranger. He just came into town. A new guy. It's not like he lived there. He just shows up into that place. Like, oh, can you, get, can you give me credit? So the Sam Seifer says, no. He wasn't going there to pay them a monetary debt. Whatever he had. Maybe he didn't have much, but he was able to pay enough for the, for the hotels. 
he came back to the same hotels on the return journey in order to pay a different kind of a debt. Avram couldn't stop talking about God. He was obsessed with God and he was always talking about him. The problem was that at that point in his life, I'm talking about what point, when he first arrived in the land of Canaan, the land the God, the God told him, you go, I'll tell you when you get there, okay, stop, this is the place. And he arrived there. He, he was a good boy, he did what he was told. He was told, go to Canaan. He went to Canaan. And immediately what happens, there's a famine. Oh, we gotta leave, okay? So he went down to Mitzrayim, he went to Egypt to go find some food. When he's going down to Egypt, and he's stopping at hotels, and he's talking about God, and the people are asking him, so why are you here? He's like, oh, because I listened to God, and then I went where God told me to go, and then there was a famine, and now i got to leave this place in order to find food so my family doesn't starve to death. Do you understand? That's really bad PR. It's bad public relations. Because you're talking about, oh, God, and I listened to God, and I obeyed God, and God told me to go, and then how did it work out for you? Well, I'm starving, and I'm hoping that we find some food. <laughs> So, like, it's really, it really doesn't sell the point. Now, I want you to understand something. From Avram's point of view, I promise you, that did not bother him at all. It did not disturb his faith on any level. But he knew that normal people <laughs> would be very disturbed by it. So the Chassam Sefer says, he went back to repay his debts. He felt he owed it to these people to tell them, like Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. Because if he's going to leave them thinking that he suffered from obeying God, they're going to get a really bad impression. Now, the truth is, from Avraham's point of view, you serve God even if you'll suffer for doing so. You keep Shabbos even if you're going to get sued and you're going to go into bankruptcy and you're going to lose your shirt. You say you believe in God even if they'll throw you into the furnace. But other people are going to watch that. It doesn't look good. There's a concept called the Kiddush Hashem sanctifying God's name, making it look attractive to live a life of faith. So Avraham went back and he told all those people, by the way, look at me, I'm rich now. Why? For one reason, it was good PR, that the people should see, oh, it did work out for you. Ah, so it is good to serve God and listen to what he says. And that's why... God tells Avram, in both of these cases, when he's going to do his lech lecho, he tells him, God tells Avram, don't worry, it won't diminish your family, your wealth, or your reputation. And also after the war with the kings, Hashem tells Avram, don't worry, you still have a lot of reward that you're going to get. Because in both cases, what's Avram thinking? He's thinking, uh-oh, this could be a Hillel Hashem. This could be a desecration of God's name where somebody who does everything right ends up having a hard life because of it. Now, personally, I'm ready for that. We know that Avram's ready for that because he jumped in the fiery furnace. But it wouldn't be good for the people watching. And that would really hurt me because then those people would not be impressed with the glory of Hashem. And so that's why Hashem told him, don't worry, we're going to make a Kiddush Hashem. Okay? It's all going to be good in the end, so that even the people that have weak faith will be impressed with this whole faith business. Now, I'm going to ask you another question. I'm not going to answer it, because I feel like there's too much 
closure going on here. And I feel like it's very Jewish to savor questions. I think it's a very Western thing, it's a Hollywood thing to answer all of our questions. It's a very Jewish thing to ask lots of questions and only to answer some of them. So I'm going to ask a big question. This is really actually called thwarting expectations and it leaves people frustrated and it's actually the worst way to, uh, to leave people um, and it makes people upset. I'm going to ask you a question and I'm not going to answer it. And it's almost like saying, knock, knock, who's there? See how frustrating that is? See, yeah? just leave a knock-knock joke hanging with no, no gratification like that. That's just, okay. Um, so here's another question for you, and I'm not gonna answer it. And I hope it does disturb you on some level. Not like, I don't want you to like be emotionally disturbed, but I, I would like it to, to cause you to think and to be like, hey, that's a really good question. Why didn't I ever think of that? Next week. Next week is Pasha's Vallejo. And no, this is not going to be the subject of my class next week because I don't want to just answer it for you. When God tells Abraham to go sacrifice his son. The biggest monotheist in the world, the biggest champion of good PR for the God of the heavens and the earth. And now, forget about his personal loss. I assume that on his level, he was ready to accept the personal loss of his child, but to completely wipe out everything he had built over a lifetime by performing a human sacrifice, such a repugnant act that would surely turn everybody off and lose all of his adherence, just wipe out all of his, all the goodwill that he had gained. You gotta wonder how in that case, Avraham was ready to go along with that. Okay, I'm not gonna answer it. Okay. So just so you don't leave totally on a melancholy note, I will tell you a knock-knock joke. But I need somebody to actually do it. You're in the front row, so you'll do Okay. Knock-knock. No, I'm... <laughs> you know a knock-knock joke? Go ahead. Okay, yeah. Who's there? Oh, you wanted to... Okay. Go ahead. Oh, I start. Okay. Now you threw me off. Knock-knock. Who's there? Interrupting cow. Interrupting. Moo. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you.